the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. podcast welcome back everybody how you doing Lindsay? i'm doing okay how about you pretty good i uh i'm glad we're coming off of alien here which is probably the most well-known movie that we've done yeah for the podcast and that's uh, a fun one i love alien so much i'm kind of glad we're switching gears going for a comedy and one that i i think is a, a really has become quite a cult film it was one that i knew growing up but i never really thought was I thought it was just one of those movies that that I knew because of the actors involved with it. But the more, you know, when you you and I were talking about doing this, I started asking people about it. And people were like, oh, I love that movie. The movie we're talking about is A Fish Called Wanda. And uh, so that'll be our main feature. We've also got our picks of the week. What's yours this time? This week, connected via Jamie Lee Curtis, I chose um early 80s movie with a huge cast of... Not real well-knowns at the time, but now they're all big household names, and that's Grandview, USA. I'm so glad. I haven't seen this, but I'm planning on watching the copy you're letting me borrow. Yeah. It's, it's not it's not great, but it's, it's, it's worth a look. <laughs> it's just, worth watching. Just for the cast alone. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. What was your pick? Um, my pick is connected to A Fish Called Wanda via Kevin Klein, and that is Soap Dish. Soap Dish. Mm-hmm. I remember you loaning me that one. It was yeah. a good time. Yeah. It wasn't one of your favorites. It wasn't one of my favorites, but... I love this movie. It was a good time. Yeah. So those are our picks of the week. And as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment. So A Fish Called Wanda, a couple of the reasons why we chose this one. Number one, I think both of us kind of grew up with this movie. This is also one, too, that I kind of had forgotten a little bit about. I hadn't seen it in quite a while. Um before we pick this so, yeah. so it's been fun to revisit and it really it's plays actually funnier than i remember and um, oh yeah i remember that kevin klein had won the oscar for best supporting best actor. supporting actor yeah. watching the movie i mean he is absolutely fantastic one thing about this is that while he is completely fantastic and you almost want to say steals the show it's really evenly matched with everybody else involved and you've got jamie lee curtis and john cleese and michael palin it's very even everyone is giving a hundred (laughs) percent over a hundred percent incredible cast yeah well what uh speaking of cast that's one of the things we'll be talking about Mm -hmm. um what's uh what are some other things we're gonna discuss here today um probably some differences between maybe not differences between, but American and and British comedy and how this movie is a good mixture of both of those things kind of converging together. We've got some behind the scenes information. A lot lot of time and work went into this movie and sort of a passion project for John Cleese. We'll talk about that. We're also going to talk about the animal violence involved in this. And and Justin, you and I are both uh, big animal lovers so it is funny to me that yeah. um, this mo- this movie does contain some animal violence. Yeah, but we'll we'll and, uh, talk about that a little bit. And I know we we had mentioned this when we were thinking about doing this movie that Jamie Lee Curtis gets turned on by people speaking another <laughs> language. And so I googled uh, if there was like a language fetish, a fetish? or there is, but there, nothing came up. But a couple people said that they had what they felt was like possibly a linguistics fetish where they said they did get turned on by people state you know speaking in other languages um but as far as i could comb not the deepest darkest areas of the internet but just surface level (laughs) stuff i didn't quite find anything but um so i think this was like completely uh created as an original concept for this movie yeah just thought i'd throw that in there some early trivia so we're going to talk I did about... Some, I did some uh, research this week as well. Some sexual fetish yeah. research. Great. I'm really glad that you did that, Justin. Um, we'll talk also um, about how this movie... I mean, we we love our genre blending on this podcast. 
And this one blends so many different things together. So we'll probably hit on that. And man, you know, one thing I remember a lot uh, as a kid was this movie seemed really dirty to me. It seemed like a super sexy movie. And as an adult, like I, I get why I, why I felt that way, but it's so silly. It is silly, but it does have, it has, uh, I would say it's like a mild sex comedy. I mean, we've already talked about sexual fetishes, so. Yeah. I guess I wasn't off. But we'll save that for second part of our discussion. So, all right, well, uh, before we get into our first clip, um, Lindsay, can you bring us up to date? What is A Fish Called Wanda about? It's kind of an intricate plot. It is an intricate plot. It focuses on four people who are in on a bank robbery together. They successfully rob a bank. And then the rest of the movie is about them kind of one by one double crossing each other after the main guy was ratted out by um, two of the partners. It is a really intricate plot. And it's not like it's hard to follow or anything like that, but but it is a, a heist movie about stolen loot. One of the few times you could mention the genre comedy crime caper. Comedy and, crime caper. Because <laughs> normally if you mention those words, like, eh, I don't know. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, not into yeah. that, actually. But this one, uh, this one really delivers. Not really into capers. Yeah. I would say that I think, and maybe I'm saying this because I'm, an American, but I feel like this movie works really well because I look at this movie like it's not an American movie, and I don't think that it is an American movie, really. Is it? I don't, I think, don't think so. I don't think so, no, not at all. And I think that that's why it works, is that there might be a couple of American, well, two Americans in it. If this was an American crime caper, I would not be. No, no. I just feel like it wouldn't be as yeah. funny or witty, and and we'll we'll get into that, the differences in comedy and and why it works well uh we'll go to our first clip and then we'll uh start talking about fish called wanda you english you think you're so superior don't you well you're the filth of the planet a bunch of pompous badly dressed poverty stricken sexually repressed football hooligans <laughs> goodbye archie well at least we're not irretrievably vulgar you know your problem you don't like winners. Winners? Yeah. Winners. Winners like North Vietnam? Shut up! We did not lose Vietnam. It was a tie. I'm telling you, baby, they kicked a little ass there. Boy, they whooped your hide real good. No, they didn't. Oh, yes, they did. Oh, no, they didn't. Oh, yes, they did. Oh, no, they did Shut up! Goodbye, Archie. You gonna shoot me? Uh, yes, yes, afraid so, old chap. Sorry. Look at him. Look. Revenge. <laughs> it's kick a kick in. Kick a coming to kick a kick kill me. <laughs> Are you gonna kick a kick catch me? So, Fish Call Wanda was um, written by John Cleese and directed by. Charles Crichton, mm-hmm. who was a uh, famous uh, British comedy director, but at the time that he had directed A Fish Called Wanda, uh, there had been about 25 years since he had It'd been quite some time had worked. Yeah, and but John Cleese had faith that he would be able to bring the right uh, comedic direction to the film. And Charles Crichton was 77 when he directed mm-hmm. A Fish Called Wanda, and uh, did get nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards. So. And it was the last film that he directed, so yeah. I think there's probably a few directors in the history of cinema that could kind of go out with a bang like that. Yeah, uh, pretty awesome. And a lot of a lot of that was, you know, with with John Cleese's assistant. Yeah, too. John Cleese definitely like I would say like was yeah, a co-director. I think he was a co-director. Yeah, yeah, co-director, like uncredited co-director. It was kind of like he um, Charles Crichton was directing the movie and John Cleese was kind of in charge of he kind of became in charge of directing the actors. Yeah. And John Cleese had really been become I mean he was kind of like a superstar and and we and, should say yeah, he's from Monty Python. He and yeah. Michael Palin are from Monty yeah. Python fame. You know, and he did uh, Faulty Towers prior to that mm-hmm. into Monty Python 
and really, you know, sort of became this like really huge comedic figure. It's a big deal. Um, and so wrote the script, um, put this together, but did want some American actors. He was in Silverado with Kevin Klein. Yeah. And uh, I know that they, he asked him and they kind of workshopped a little bit of uh, Kevin Klein's character together for a couple days and yeah. really flushed that one out. And then uh, Jamie Lee Curtis came about when uh, John Cleese, he and his daughter went to go see Trading Places in 83. That was 83. Yeah. And uh, he kind of fell in love with Jamie Lee Curtis and asked her and I think she was pretty skeptical at first and I think in the initial conversation or maybe when they met up afterwards to have a conversation you know about actually doing it he mentioned a possible nude scene because I think that was Trading Places was her first nude scene yeah yeah. topless and she's like okay I get where this is going and pretty cool turn of events. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis was like, yeah, you know, it'd be even better actually if you did the nude scene. And that is actually what happened. It makes the movie funnier. It's for it. totally funnier. So John Cleese ended up with that scene instead of Jamie Lee Curtis. And uh, this is one that John Cleese had worked on for quite a while. Like, I think he had told Kevin Klein, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm working on, I got this idea of this part for you and mine specifically written for Kevin Klein and Kevin Klein's like, yeah, sure. It sounds great. And I guess Kevin Klein said very rare to someone say that, but then like two years later or whatever, mm-hmm. produce a script. Mm-hmm. And, um, it seemed that John Cleese really had, you know, the people in mind was writing specifically for, he um, did like 13 drafts of wanted. the script. too. Yeah. And it, it's a very tight script. I mean, it's yeah. like a very well placed, well-timed comedy there's just like very little fat on this movie i mean it and it is a movie that comedies to me usually that clock in more than like 95 minutes (laughs) yeah can get pretty long in a tooth especially if they have a very thin story Mm -hmm. this one's about an hour and 48 minutes and this movie just moves i mean it is like oh yeah to me it has like a breakneck pace and part of the reason why is because it has a very intricate an interesting story and outside of the comedy i think it has a good storyline and a good mm-hmm. plot but then you add all these comedic bits in there i think you really come out with something special and unique and that's why i think that this is yeah one of the rare comedies that doesn't wear out its welcome and even though they do repeat a couple of jokes you know they they build on it this is one that i just feel like it stays fresh it does it does. You you can really tell when watching this movie, and I, I don't mean you can really tell as in it becomes something that's distracting, but you can tell how well-planned it is without it seeming stodgy or, you know, inorganic or something like that. It, it, it really feels very natural and just incredibly well-staged. And th- that's all thanks to John Cleese and coming from the background that he has that for someone like Jamie Lee Curtis was not really used to... Like, John John Cleese was... He wasn't uh, much on ad-libbing. And especially become, coming from a writer's point of view, you don't really ad-lib when you're working with a writer generally. Yeah, and I feel like all the characters in the movie are really well-defined. They're very sharp and yeah. they're we get information about the characters and who they are without it being cheap and sort of like ho hum kind of way where a lot of times you know in american comedy you'll see like this guy's down on his luck like the opening credits he's walking the titles are going he gets splashed by a puddle you know a car drives by and splashes him and then his briefcase falls over and all the stuff falls out and then he's late for work and the boss is you know onto him like, and like we're handed all yeah of this yeah we kind of get all this in the first like yeah. three or four minutes whereas like this movie i feel like we kind of get they, they dig a little bit deeper into the characters as the movie goes along i think too the difference with this movie than i would say in american comedy is is like a lot of times in american comedy there's like usually just one comic mm-hmm. and everything is sort of like perpetuated on what that comic does like there may be bit players around them that there are could be bit players and it's usually like a really thin yeah. you know and what comes to mind is like a lot of eddie murphy movies a lot yeah. of adam sandler movies and i love some of these movies but a lot of them there's almost no i mean the storyline is so basic the plot is so thin it's just like the actor the comedic actor 
doing their comedy it's based bits. on that person yeah and, yeah and and a lot of times it gets pretty old and then the the in-between stuff can be pretty boring or pretty lackluster whereas this movie doesn't live and die by any person's performance like there's a, a, a storyline there's like a plot and it's more about timing mm-hmm. it's not so much about somebody riffing or doing some sort of like improvised bit like everything feels very honed in and like meticulous and uh one final thing i'll say just about the you know comparing american comedies to of uh, british comedies with fish called wanda and admittedly i uh, have not seen very many british comedies so um, in this discussion of fish called wanda representing all of the uh, british comedies which i have not seen um i feel like uh, uh a big difference, I would say, again, is um, take, for instance, a, a show like Seinfeld, which I know is a television show and is situational, but considered one of the biggest and funniest uh, American uh, comedies. The humor there is, is again, it's it's situation based. It's um, uh, what I consider to be a very American comedy style, and that's uh, not so much being so focused on uh, a story being plot driven, but um more so relying on like setups, like you're setting things up and you'll go to a ridiculous length to just set up a joke versus uh, A Fish Called Wanda, which to me again is more, there is humor um, and they do set some things up, but it's more character based. It's it's more, um, they'll use humor, but they'll also use that to dig in deeper with the characters and, and make them more rich. And then it's definitely more plot driven. Things don't just happen for no reason so that they can uh, get to a joke. Another thing, too, with the Seinfeld comparison is like with something like Seinfeld, which I think is a hilarious show. I love it. Um, but with something like that, you almost have the central character and all of the supporting characters around like all of all of them are are just a strong individually on their own but in a sense they are central figures and they are kind of maybe not I don't want to say putting down but the the instead of the comedy happening to that central character it is everyone around those characters that are that is that are the butt of the jokes and in something like a fish called Wanda it, it is the the these characters that are the butt of the jokes for one of a better phrase yeah like it's happening all of the comedy is happening to them without it being fat guy in a little coat type of humor it's very contained yeah yeah well we'll go to another clip fish called wanda and then we'll come back we'll talk about the cast and a little more of the behind the scenes all right don't call me stupid oh right to call you stupid would be an insult to stupid people I've known sheep that could outwit you. I've worn dresses with higher IQs, but you think you're an intellectual, don't you, ape? Apes don't read philosophy. Yes, they do, Otto. They just don't understand it. Now, let me correct you on a couple things, okay? Aristotle was not Belgian. The central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. And the London Underground is not a political movement. Those are all mistakes, Otto. I looked them up. Now, you have just assaulted the one man who can keep you out of jail and make you rich. So what are you going to do about it, huh? What would an intellectual do? What would Plato do? Pardon me? Apologize. What? Apologize. Right. I'm sorry. No, not to me, to Archie, and make it good or we're dead. So this movie very much is a, a dark comedy. Yes. Um, and it gets pretty dark. Pretty cruel. One of the things yeah. I think uh, when we're talking about differentiating between American and British comedy is the amount of pet violence that takes yeah. place in this movie. <laughs> and... Um, Pet violence is something that uh, really doesn't pop up in American comedies too much. I mean, the National Lampoon's Vacations certainly have a little bit of pet violence in each one of their movies. (laughs) But outside of that, Americans are not really into seeing it. And and the British are a very pet-loving society. Um, But pet violence is very evident. But I do know that in this movie, 
There's three dog deaths. <laughs> yeah. Multiple fish deaths. And uh, they had to tone down the, the dog deaths. The dog deaths. They had mm-hmm. to tone down the violence in them because American audiences were responding like there's a, very negatively. There's one, let's see, it's three Yorkies that all eat it. Um, one gets dragged off by a Doberman. One gets smashed by like a, a piece of concrete that's getting lowered. And one gets run over. Yeah. I believe it gets run over. Yeah. All accidentally killed by Ken, the pet loving Michael Palin. <laughs> Michael Palin's character. And that's the joke is that he's a huge animal lover but yeah he's, he's trying he's trying to he's trying to rub out this woman who's a witness to in the court to the bank robbery to the bank robbery yeah and uh <laughs> he, he he's trying to kill her but he keeps accidentally killing her dogs <laughs> with every uh assassination attempt but yeah it's something that you know it's it's very dark and, and though these the the deaths the dog deaths are played out in a very silly uh manner they were um, they were a little bit more grotesque in a scene where Kevin Klein is sort of torturing Ken the animal lover for information uh Ken loves his fish you know he he's named he's he's even named one of his fish Wanda hence the title mm-hmm. and uh Kevin Klein is trying to get information and Ken won't answer Michael Palin's character because everyone's answer. been double crossing yeah. each other and, and uh, hiding where the so, the uh, Kevin loot Klein is. starts eating his goldfish one by one yeah. in a very demented dark malicious scene um, well he's got him tied up to a chair and and he's uh what is he he's he's eating french fries or he's chips yeah what's he say the, the one thing that the british uh, culinary cultures contributed are chips and what goes with chips fish that's right and so he has ken michael palin tied up to this chair and sticks ketchup covered french fries up his nose and then starts eating Ken's fish in front of him in and, order uh, to find out where the uh, hidden bank loot is. Yeah, which 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 brings us into the cast here. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Klein's portrayal of this British hating American, you yeah. know, and I think I think that his character is written specifically to sort of like embody this sort of like American egoism. Uh, you know this very self-conscious like shallow aggressive type, aggressive person yeah and it, his character if he wasn't so it's very funny, egocentric as well so egocentric and and but he play if it's played with so much humor it's so over the top you would think that you wouldn't be able to stand it's like he's so charming you, but you hate yeah, him you, at the same time you wouldn't think that you'd be able to stand this character but kevin klein is mm-hmm. able to give it just the right amount of swarmy and, and charm mm-hmm. that the character needs to make him totally hysterical. Like you're and, kind of attracted to him, but you also want to slap him straight and, and, in the face. And it's just like with every moment that he's on screen, I can't, it's just like, <laughs> I can't take my eyes off of him. Yeah. It's just like he, this yeah. is, I mean, this is a incredible performance, comedic performance. Um, one that every very much like, again, deserves the Oscar uh, that was awarded, but just looking back on, I mean, it is just so good. He's so I spot mean, on. so amazing. And I, I would say, also the antithesis of of him would be the if he's supposed to be the, you know, quintessential nasty American that John Cleese, John Cleese's character who plays the barrister who's um, representing. Um, the the one of the bank robbers who got pinched in this whole thing. John yeah. Cleese's character is representing the the typical stodgy, uptight British. Yeah, the the just the epitome of like stodgy yeah. Britishness. Yeah, and it's and it and it all is very intentional. But I, I I feel like John Cleese didn't write this to hit you in the face with it. It's it's just he's making a joke at it. He's making fun of both British people and. And Americans all at once. Yeah, and it is good to say not hitting over the head because this is a movie that is very brash, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like you're being comp- like force fed these characters. Yeah, you know, they're and they maybe- come they come alive on the screen, and and it is. I mean, again, I think this is where a sharp and smart comedy knows 
that tightrope of like not making a character too outrageous that they're unlikable. And I'll, 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 I'll say this for early Jim Carrey movies. You know, I love Jim Carrey, Mm -hmm. but I know that his early roles can turn people off because like Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber, The Mask, Cable Guy, there, 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 there's no tightrope being walked there. I mean, it is like brash in your face. Immediately you either have to jump on board for a character like that or get off because there's no, if you, if you're five minutes into one of those early Jim Carrey movies and you don't like it, it's not going to get better for <laughs> it's you. It's not going to get better. It's just, you're, you're just, you're, it's not going to let up. Yeah. You know, his character is not going to deviate from that full speed yeah. ahead, like style of comedy. And I love it. You know I mean? And I'm fully on board. I love it but, too, but it is but hitting I, you but in I, the But face. I do say, but I do think this is a movie that could be that, you know, Kevin Klein's mm-hmm. character could Initially, you could think that, but you can kind of grow to love the character, even though he is very, very, very much like an aggressive, crazy character. Just gross American. And one last thing I'll say about Kevin Klein is, um, you know, we've come to know Kevin Klein as a comedic actor. He was very played more serious roles in Sophie's Choice and Big uh, Chill. Big Chill, and so this was a. You know the the character we get became more familiar with in In and Out and Dave. Yeah. Um, the sort of goofball <laughs> silliness that mm-hmm. he that he brought to other roles. This was sort of I think one of the first roles that really showed his comedic chops. And uh, have to say, give a shout out to Kevin Klein as being a hometown hero for us. Of course. Um, you know, as a St. Louis treasure. Yeah, we like to grab onto that one. He he's so immensely talented. So. I want to talk a little bit about Jamie Lee Curtis. I know we've kind of discussed this a little bit off the mic. When we do these episodes, we try to find a lot of the old interviews. And mm-hmm. at the time the movie came out, uh, you know, a lot of these actors will do the talk show circuit or whatever yeah. they could find. Yeah. And some of the interviews that you uncover on YouTube are quite entertaining because and you know the whole uh, uh-huh. cast was on the Donahue show. I watched that uh, whole pi- thing piped in via satellite. It like was really, two of them were on the show, and then two of them were piped in via satellite. Really funny. Um, but through this whole like watching these interviews, I really got to sense that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was like really not. It, it didn't really dawn on me that she really wasn't looked at as like as such a serious actor as some of the other people in this movie. And I have forgotten that you know she was known as like a horror genre sure actor and then had did trading places um you know after fish called wanda her career really took off yeah but i got the sense that she wasn't given as much credit as she probably should have no in so many interviews like they're they'll ask her so what's it like working with three comedic geniuses and it's just <laughs> like the she answered every time that question comes up she answers it in such a smart ass way like it's a yeah. backhanded compliment and uh yeah and and because i think that jamie lee curtis really pulls this movie together in a lot of ways she really does like yeah. she's like the middle ground and i also think that she really does deliver not just a great performance but it's a very balanced performance where you know she is uh, this very deviant character, uh, you know, she's playing. She's manipulating she's everybody. Very manipulative, in. She a also movie. makes out with all of the male leads. Yeah, and also like, but yeah, manipulating via sexuality. <laughs> or, but I do think that she is a great asset to the movie. I do think that, as far as like the the cast goes, she's like the straight she plays like the straight character. Yeah. Um, everyone else is pretty outrageous, but she's sort of like, you know, down the line, like keeps her cool, keeps her balance. Everybody else has this sort of like outrageousness to them. Um, and I think you need that. I think when you have like this sort of ensemble cast, you know, you usually have these more intense characters and in a more subdued character. She's the one, you know, is going to get away with, the money yeah more she she has the biggest chance of getting away she, with the she's money the than smart anybody. one out of yeah. everybody yes and i do uh i do appreciate that and i do think that as much as maybe she wasn't credited prior to people seeing this movie i think this movie is like yet another example of how great of an actress she is and also how she worked with john cleese like things weren't going well in certain scenes and so she 
you know, would speak up and try different things and, and push the character further to, to, to give the character more depth. And I think that's really great. I think, especially in the comedy where that's not always something that's thought of, you know, like the depth of the character or the motivation of a character. Yeah, she, Usually in a comedy, it's just like, it just has to be funny. But yeah. this, I think like she was striving for something more because some of the comedy elements were coming from elsewhere and she wanted to get the character down and make sure that you know there was room to breathe and I really buy into the sort of relationship that she has with John Cleese and even though I wouldn't say that this movie borders on a romantic comedy there is a tiny bit there a little bit and and it's enough to be believable I think that she as much as you can believe that she would be down with John Cleese's character there's enough there and she plays it well enough to where it um it is within the vein of reality. And she did say that in making this movie, that especially for someone like John Cleese, who is very rigid on no ad-libbing and like we rehearse this scene 80 times in in order to get it perfect. She said that it was the first time on a movie where someone was open to listening to all everyone's idea like all of the actors ideas and incorporating that into the characters and into the story and being open to something like that which is pretty cool for someone that's that's really rigid and she also said it uh, would most likely affect her on on future productions that she would do of um you know now that she had gotten used to that after previously like that's not something that ever worked on movies was actually listening to the actors. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Um, I, I think everybody really adds so much to this movie. Um, and even Michael, Michael Palin, I feel, I think it's really funny that, okay, so the bank robbers are Kevin Klein, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Palin, and, uh, not George, uh, Tom Jorgensen, I believe is the actor. Um, those three are, are the bank robbers and like we already said, John Cleese is the barrister representing um, the one that got pinched. It is really funny to me that the two Monty Python guys, that being John Cleese and Michael Palin, are probably, while they are, they add a lot of comedy to this movie. Mainly that comedy element is contingent upon Kevin Klein and Jamie Lee Curtis's interactions, thus facilitating uh, comedic interactions yeah. happening. I do find really John Cleese's reactions to things comedic. Because Pretty he much plays it so every, straight. Every step of the way, just him reacting to things is hysterical to me. Because he is reacting yeah. in a stodgy British way. And, and Michael Palin's <laughs> character... The, we need to go into this, though. Treading lightly, Michael Palin's character has a stutter, mm-hmm. which is... I don't even want... I, I can't say the word... I can't defend the word tastefully, but I think it's done... In, you know, it's, it's definitely done, played up... Is played to to make for laughs. He said specifically he did this to he didn't want it to come off um, as just like a jokey thing that you're laughing at someone with a stutter. And I I don't laugh at it because he has a stutter. I think it's the way that he plays having a stutter and what's being said is is what's getting the laugh, not necessarily laughing at someone with a stutter. Was it Michael Palin's dad that had a stutter? It was, was Michael it? Palin's yeah, dad. And, yeah, and he said he thought that it would be funny. A it was scene John, be, or John, John Cleese, Cleese wanted to have a character that, with a stutter that had and, to give some important information. Yeah, and, and Michael Palin's father had a stutter. Yeah. And so he was pulling from reality. Yeah. And his taste, and again, nowadays, it, it you know, you I could mean, say, I, I can't, def- I can't defend it. Is Forrest it. Gump offensive? You know what yes. I mean? Like, well, yeah, of course. But <laughs> it's like, in the context, it's funny. You know, and I don't find it to be mean spirited, but I can't defend it. But I do. <laughs> it is in Kevin Klein's meanness toward his. Yes, there is a lot. Debilitation is. is but he's also the despicable character. I too. know. I know. But it's like his crassness is is funny because it's it's just so unnecessarily brutal. But I don't feel like it is um, the same. I would say along with the stutter, the, um, the, you know, kind of off color comments about, um, all British men being gay or like kind of, yeah, off color gay comments. I don't feel like 
that the gay comments and the stutter I don't feel are hostile. Like, I don't either, and I don't, I mean, this is a movie that's not lowbrow in any way. Yeah. I mean, I think that it 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 maintains a, a certain level of elegance in its comedy, even though it goes to some pretty outrageous links. Yeah. And, I mean, this is up there. I mean, this is like a very unusually made, sharp comedy that I, I just don't think that there's... I mean, I think this is one of the movies that I've seen in a while... If you haven't seen it, I just encourage you to like go go revisit Fish Called Wanda because it is. I mean, it it just like I was in a fantastic mood after I watched <laughs> this. This is a really funny movie. It is a really funny movie, and I think as far as like on the you know of offensive lines and on how uh, dark it goes with its comedy, it really walks like perfectly a tightrope on, you could either go on one side and it just like flopping and not being funny or just going, ooh, that's really, wipe my brow, that's a little too yeah. much. It's It walks like such a perfect line in that you don't feel scumbaggy laughing at, yeah. at, the, at the things that are said and the things that are done in it. Even at, I mean... I don't, I think I've said before in this podcast, I stay away from pretty much anything with animal violence or I'm just like, you know what, that's going in a special category. But this has a lot of it, but still I don't put it in the, like, it, it makes me feel bad. Yeah, afterwards. it doesn't doesn't bother me. And yeah, yeah. We're, we're definitely ones that would be highly <laughs> yeah. affected by it. Um, finally, I want to say, like, this is a... This was one of those lightning in the bottle type movies. I mean, this was a movie that was made for a relatively small budget. Very, um, as far as I've, I've read, like came together, came together extremely well. Was a huge success internationally. Made a lot of money. Was nominated for three Oscars: best director, best supporting actor, best screenplay. So an all around success story. I know that there is a movie. I have not seen it. Creatures. Um, sort of a spiritual sequel to a fish called Juan. It came out in the early two thousands, I believe. A spiritual sequel meaning that it has mainly like has all basically the all the same members. cast members, yeah. but doesn't they're playing different characters, not the same characters. I've never seen it. I've not read too many things about it. I've actually saw an interview with John Cleese where he said he has very few regrets, but one of them is probably making fierce creatures. Yeah. But one of these days I'm eventually gonna get around to seeing it. <laughs> but um Man, you know what the budget for this movie was and like, then what it made? It was like eight million or something. Yeah, it was it like seven like, and a half million and yeah. then it made like nearly sixty three million dollars. Yeah. Which for, I mean Which you, doesn't sound like a lot by today's standards, but nineteen eighty nine for for a comedy with not huge comedic stars. I mean Ameri you know. I mean it did have I mean Monty Python but but, but I mean in America, for, in America for making so much money in America yeah and I mean just thinking about budget versus box office like that's insane yeah that's a insane profit yeah so um, it, it's pretty cool for a small movie yeah like absolutely this. and and again a, a a fond farewell to director Charles Crichton to you know mm -hmm. again most directors in their 70s making movies usually put out three or four movies and and, and critically yeah. kind of bashed or they're just not that good so but John Cleese wanted him because he was such a pioneer of a like an early form of a uh, comedy that came out of um was it Ealing Ealing, Ealing theater Ealing, Ealing theater comedy. comedy yeah um, I don't know too much about it but that was just, it was like a specific yeah. style or it was like a production company yeah. with like a 10-year run it made a lot of a lot of uh Ealing films that came out of this company but it was like a, a good 10-year time span of uh Ealing comedies is, yeah. is what they're called it was, it was a pretty formative uh British comedy and he was um kind of a pioneer yeah. director of of quite a few well uh yeah, if you haven't seen it in a while, Fish Called Wanda, um, readily available. Just to, you, know, you can get it on uh, Amazon. You can usually get a DVD pretty cheap. But it's such a good movie. Yeah, I've, it's, it's it's an yeah. owner for me. It's one that um, a fantastic Blu-ray edition. If Blu-ray is your thing, which I'm into, uh, Arrow Video uh, recently released a fantastic Blu-ray with tons of behind-the-scenes stuff. A great transfer. Highly recommend picking it up if you. Uh, 
if this is a movie that you want in your collection. And a lot of the press and promo that came out around this, uh, John Cleese did. I mean, all of, I have to say, of all of the press that I saw for this, one of the things that is still, because it just is nonstop, is the kind of like ageist humor that happens between Jamie Lee Curtis and John Cleese um, when promoting this movie. It's just like, it almost seems like they hate each other in the press for it, but you can see that time and time again that it happens in interviews about the movie. Like they're just so dedicated to like adhering to that, that it's, uh, it's, it's admirable and really funny. And I could see how doing that would evoke some type of, would make someone want to go, man, what's the story behind this movie? It's, um, man, this movie's so good and I, I can't, I can't say enough good things about it. Well, uh, let's move on to our picks of the week. So your pick of the week tied to Fish Called Wanda via Kevin Klein yes. was Soap Dish, which is a movie that you loaned to me mm-hmm. four or five months ago. I enjoyed it. It wasn't. It wasn't. You did enjoy. It, it. wasn't a hundred percent my thing. I think your exact words were somewhere around. It wasn't my thing, but I could see how you would like it. And I probably meant that in the most loving way possible. <laughs> <laughs> it is totally my type of comedy. It and totally humor. is. Yeah, you know what I mean. I do know what you mean. <laughs> so, Lindsay, what can you tell us about Soap Dish? Well, with the quick humor that's been contained in A Fish Called Wanda that we've been talking about, it really made me think about this 1991 immensely satirical soap opera comedy, Soap Dish, not only starring Kevin Klein, but also Sally Field, Elizabeth Shue, Robert Downey Jr., Whoopi Goldberg, Kathy Moriarty, Terry Hatcher, Gary Marshall, Carrie Fisher, and Kathy Najimy. I mean, dude, the cast is insane. Oscar winners and nominees everywhere. And they're all turned up to 11 for this movie. Soap Dish seems like a real dream of a movie for actors because I feel that it's perfectly timed in a lot of the same ways like Soap Dish is. And it requires an actor to be over the top, but to also take yourself really seriously all at once. So the plot is almost too involved to break down, so we'll go with this. It's about the ins and outs and behind the scenes of a long-running soap opera with failing ratings. One thing leads to another, and real life begins to bleed into the plot of the show. Secrets are uncovered, and endless amount of drama begins to unfold, leading to the lives of the actors and uh, the the real lives of the actors involved, uh, leading to their lives changing forever during a live broadcast of the show. Now, whether or not it truly is, Soap Dish feels like it was created by people on the inside of the entertainment industry with details on how productions go down, but it's even more amped up, obviously. Uh, It's a reality show soap opera within a fictional soap opera, a screwball comedy, um, just a lot of twisted and scandalous subplots, and that's what makes it brilliant. It can almost get away with anything, almost get away with anything. The drama that's unfolding in each of the actors' lives, mainly Sally Field, Kevin Klein, and Elizabeth Shue, is being intertwined in the storyline of the TV show. The movie is fast and involved, but not too fast that you get lost. It's confusing, but that kind of becomes the norm. And I honestly feel like if this were a less talented cast that you could really not buy what happens in the movie. Uh, another reason that this movie works is that the humor is being played with complete seriousness. So it's a movie that knows it's a comedy, but the actors inside of it are living it like it's a to- like they're in total crisis mode instead of just playing it for laughs. Whether the soap opera writers for the show, which the show in the movie is called The Sun Also Sets which is such a soap opera name, Um, whether they're writing these storylines, these dramatic storylines to increase ratings, you know, like a murder, a trial, an affair, a brain transplant in the middle of a restaurant, or the writers for the movie Soap Dish are trying or are playing up the real world 
drama behind the soap opera involving, you know, a secret daughter, a potential incest, an affair, a sexy scandal with a producer and an actress, or attempting to save a the fledgling career of an aging actress. This movie is hilarious. It's it's just a great behind-the-scenes reality check, I feel like, for the entertainment industry. I'd really like to know what Hollywood uh, folk think of this movie, if they lovingly adore it or think it hits too close to home or, or if it's completely off base. I mean, I don't know. I don't work on a soap opera or on a TV show. I'm just, it, it would be, I'm curious to see how close to home it hits. And while there are many revelations at the end of Soap Dish and all throughout the movie, there is one that's, that's kind of uncool. Uh, one character at the, at the end, you know, not to spoil anything, but one character at the, at the end is exposed as a transgendered person um, to explain away one dramatic plot point. And one could look at this as yet another example of transphobia in films. I mean, do we need to talk about Ace Ventura, The Crying Game, Zoolander, Trainspotting, Sleepaway Camp, Silence of the Lambs, 40-Year-Old Virgin, Crocodile Dundee? I mean, just to name a few here. It's it's it was a thing for a while and kind of I mean still is, but um definitely during the 80s and early 90s. But here's why I think Soap Dish gets a tiny pass or maybe not a pass, just like you can explain it a little bit more. The entire plot of this movie is a soap opera, something like misgendering or a quote unquote sex change operation plot. I mean, this is where the idea comes from, using something like this as the biggest plot twist that you never saw coming. And try to think about this from a late 80s or early 90s perspective. This wasn't a heavily explored topic and it wasn't mainstream at all. I mean, in fact, anybody in the LGBT community craved any type of visibility at this point. Any type of visibility was good, even if you were the butt of a joke. But there were a lot of misconceptions about what it meant to be trans at the time. So it should be said beforehand that this plot twist does indeed exist at the end of Soap Dish, but I feel like it was very deliberate because the whole point of the movie is a parody of a soap opera parodying real life. But yes, you could definitely be offended. Obviously, I wouldn't be bringing it up if it, you know, if I didn't understand that. Soap Dish does break the wall between fiction and reality. I think that's what what I love most about it. And the comedic talent that's involved is, uh, I think it's probably the cast is what I love most about this movie. The moral of the story is that real life is much more interesting than anything that could be dreamt up or written into a soap opera, which is most commonly thought of as the most ridiculous vehicle for fictionalized stories. Hell, soap operas have been around since 1930s, really, if we think about it. I do feel like Soap Dish is at risk of being lost in the bin of $1.99 comedies left behind. And despite its problematic ending that I just mentioned, the entirety of this movie is still one of my most favorites out there. I've been known to quote this movie quite often, Justin, not that you would know or anything, but I do feel like with Soap Dish that life doesn't imitate art. It tops it. I don't know how many times I've quoted this movie. Yeah, I did. uh, You know, (laughs) when you told me this was one of your favorite movies, that's all I needed to hear to check it out. So I am and I enjoyed it. You know, it is a it is a nice ensemble piece. Um I think that I, I could go for a second viewing, you know, I mean, it, it, there's a lot going on in this movie. Um, it's, it's very fast paced. It's ridiculous. It's madcap. It's there's fainting. There's <laughs> um. I think it helps if you grew <laughs> up on soap operas, which is something that yeah. I, I didn't really I, w- I mean, I sure I saw some when I was growing up, but I didn't really. I feel know like that world or I was so far removed from that world yeah. when I watched Soap Dish. I think if I would have seen this movie in high school, because I probably saw some soap operas like during the summertime, you know, being off of school in the summer, like in eighth or ninth grade. Mm-hmm. So I think if I would have seen this movie in high school or something, I would have. I mean, I don't ever feel like that this movie was targeting 
teenagers by by any stretch of the imagination I, f- I feel like i saw this mom because or i saw this movie because my mom liked it and i kn- knew of the movie because pretty much everyone in it was famous and i didn't necessarily grow up with soap operas or watching soap operas but i think I grew I mean I always grew up wanting to be an actor so I think yeah. the flair for the dramatics always kind of was was there within me and this movie is just non-stop yeah. like over the top comedic uh storylines and acting so I th- I think in an over the top sort of American way yeah um this movie is is pretty is a, is a pretty tastefully done distasteful comedy full of a bunch of scumbags yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well thanks for that um of course well, why don't you tell me about yours my movie my pick of the week <laughs> the movie that you made for yeah. your pick of the week yes please tell me about your pick of the week uh, justin i chose granville usa uh which was um connected to fish Wanda via jamie lee curtis uh, this movie came out in 1984 this was a very tiny film that I saw many times uh, growing up on like a Sunday afternoon. It is a coming-of-age story that takes place in a very small Midwestern town, uh, which is very relatable to me. This is kind of one of those towns where like you would stop and get gas on a road trip, and you'd wonder, like, what do people do in this town? Well, this movie sort of gives you a idea of what that lifestyle is like. It stars a, a huge up-and-coming cast, um, main stars, C. Thomas Howell, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Patrick Swayze. Kind of wild because C. Thomas Howell and Patrick Swayze had uh, previously starred in Red Dawn together, and just the year before that were both in The Outsiders together. So these two were, you know, in the span of just a year and a half, were in two movies, or three movies together. This was uh, probably one of the first few Jamie Lee Curtis films outside of her being sort of a teenage scream queen in the horror genre. This movie altogether, it's not, it's not a great film. Um, it's kind of meandering. It sort of shows how these characters feel sort of trapped in this small town. C. Thomas Howell wants to be an oceanographer. He wants to move to Florida. He's a senior in high school. Jamie Lee Curtis's character is sort of a gruff, mechanic she runs a demolition derby uh called the speedway that's sort of like the main entertainment that the town has on the weekends patrick swayze is sort of the big demolition derby star uh his wife is uh always kind of cheating on him going out uh she's having an affair um his wife is portrayed by jennifer jason lee um there's also small roles by John Cusack and Joan Cusack. Again, um, this movie's very meandering. I do care about the characters, and I do think it's an enjoyable film. It does make for a nice, lazy afternoon movie. This is like the perfect lazy Sunday afternoon movie. But I think the movie could have helped by having like a stronger director. I mean, there is we kind of drift in and out of these characters' lives. Sometimes they interact, sometimes they don't. Um, but overall, it really shows, it really feels realistic to me, like sort of like what life in a small town is like. The movie itself was shot on location in Pontiac, Illinois, which is about three hours north of us from here in St. Louis. And it really does, has the look and the feel of a Midwestern small town. I think it really benefited the movie, taking the production and filming in a realistic, real small town. I I do believe in the end credits. They're all hanging out, watching this town parade. It doesn't say so. I haven't found any information on this, but I just want to go ahead and say I'm pretty sure that was just going on, and they were just kind of rolling camera while they had like Jamie Lee Curtis and and Patrick Swayze hanging out. This is a movie, I think it it was meant to be a comedy. There's, There's a couple of funny bits in there, but overall it is a very harmless nice coming-of-age story. I think the main draw to this movie of watching it nowadays would be to just see this uh, kind of big cast unknown at the time. It was a movie that was pretty hard to come by 
until about four or five years ago. It's been recently released to DVD. You can find it on Amazon Prime now. Again, not the greatest film, but I still enjoy it, and I, you know, watched it a couple times leading up to this episode. And yeah, it has it has some nice authenticity to it. I can't wait to watch this. I I just remembered actually tonight that you gave this to me. And uh, maybe I'll watch that tonight, actually, when I go home. If you were on the fence of whether or not you thought Patrick Swayze was just a handsome man, it's like the the literally the moment that he comes on screen, I think like later films, yeah. he kind of, but this is like before he be, became an action star, but he just has like a presence about him. You know what's funny? I don't know if I ever really considered Patrick Swayze an action star. I mean, Roadhouse. Like Point Break, Roadhouse. Point Break. Uh, yeah, I guess I I don't he's know. Just, I I even guess with Roadhouse, I just he's just he's just a good guy. Yeah, he's just a good guy. I lo- I I'm out. I'll say I love Patrick Swayze. Yeah, I I don't me too. think I mean Patrick Swayze doesn't have a ton of range. You know, he kind of kind of always plays like kind of like a brooding, he doesn't stoic need character. But you know what? David Boreanaz I'll wouldn't have it, a career without him. I'll take it all day long. You know. Yeah. So those are our picks of the week. Soap Dish and Grandview USA. We'll move along here. This is your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Hey, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. favorite things about this Murray moment segment is bringing to light all the underreported Billy bit parts, uh, stories that aren't the most covered or insights from the man himself via interviews or maybe in his own words. I try to shy away from the obvious ones, but you know, sometimes they eke in there due to whatever our main feature happens to be that week. When trying to connect Billy to any person who started out being famous before 1980, it's almost a solid guarantee you can take it back to Saturday Night Live. And I could certainly tell you about that time that Michael Palin from A Fish Called Wanda has hosted SNL four times. Three of those times were with Billy in the cast, and one time, the first one, um, Billy said that it was the best episode all that season. But you know what? I'll, I'll just stop that one there. Okay, anyway, I'll move away, or let's say adjacently away from Saturday Night Live, onto another Billy and Michael Palin connection. It's 2019, and we all know what a mockumentary film is, right, Justin? We know you either love it or you hate it, depending. And although this concept was, uh, you know, around as early as, say, like the 1930s with Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, if you want to consider that kind of a mockumentary, because it was. I mean, that went through the 60s and it probably wasn't even popularized really until Rob Reiner brought us the amazingly ridiculous This is Spinal Tap in 1984. But Justin, did you know about the little British documentary TV movie parodying the Beatles called The Ruddles, All You Need Is Cash? I did not. (laughs) All right. Well, let me tell you a tiny... I mean, I could go on for a while about this, but we'll just talk about Billy. The Ruddles? The Ruddles. R-U-T-L-E-L-E-S. The Ruddles. Primarily, it was starring Eric Idle from Monty Python, and Michael Palin was in this as well. Prim- it, it was definitely an, an Eric Idle push. So, okay. This predates Spinal Tap by almost six years, and wouldn't you know it, as I said, Billy has a bit part in it. And it might only be about 60 seconds long, but it's one of the most memorable moments of all the cameos in this film. And there are quite a few. I mean, on top of SNL, there's also uh, SNL characters. There's also uh, Mick Jagger, uh, Paul Simon. Anyway, you just should check it out. Okay, I'm getting off track. This 
cameo is one of my most favorite Billy moments, I'd have to say. And he's, we all know that he's been in, especially later in his career, he's, he's done bit roles, but this is probably one of my favorites. So Billy plays Bill Murray the K, um, a play on the actual New York disc jockey Murray the K. The real life Murray the K worked as a DJ from the late 50s to early 70s, gaining massive popularity during the 60s as one of the earliest and most ardent supporters of the Beatles. He was always feverishly encouraging American radio listeners to absorb everything the Beatles. Although there were many, you know, quote unquote, fifth Beatles out there, Murray the K was one of the hardest contenders for this title. Now, why was Billy even involved in the first place? Well, that's, of course, Lauren Michaels. It always goes back to Lauren Michaels, um, creator of SNL, and also the reason that Gilda Radner, Dan Aykroyd, and John Belushi also did cameos in the film. Lauren fell in love with the Ruddle short film A Hard Day's Rut, which originally aired on the BBC in 76, and later um, as an SNL short, uh, it was, of course, a play on the film a hard day's night and i remember seeing just it's just like a little bit of this i remember seeing it when i was a kid much later of course not not 76 but i remember seeing it and not knowing what it was from but it was kind of funny to go back and realize what this uh, that this uh, little sketch was actually from this movie at the time of filming, Billy had recently joined the cast of SNL and naturally fit the name portion of the Marie the K character, so it was a perfect fit. Apparently, the almost 60 seconds of Billy uh, when he was on screen was mostly improvised, go figure. I'm sure that there's more footage out there, but I haven't been able to track down any of that unaired footage. Billy was at the height of his almost getting off on make making people laugh era of his career, like when he really, really, really loved making people laugh. So even if he did excitedly scream throughout this entire 60 seconds, he's screaming the entire time. It's incredible. You can't help but love every single second and feel that Ruddles mania that we were all meant to feel. I can only imagine if I were a Beatles fan at the time. Justin, can we go to a clip from Ruddles? All you need is cash. I'm finding it here. Here we go. Flushing animals, what do you want to know? What do you want to hear? If you call me up at 555-2160 and say you want to hear anything but the Reddles, I'm going to come looking for you. I mean it. Because it's Reddles Day. They're going to be here tomorrow talking about their trousers. It's a big, big day here in Flushing. Let's give them a big round of applause. I know I can't hear you, but I know I can pick up what you're saying, baby. The scene is here in Flushing. The whole world's eyes are on Flushing because the Prefab Four are coming to town tomorrow to talk about their trousers. We well, I don't know about this. Do you know about this? Oh, Billy, you in that Ruddle shirt and awesomely terrible wig that's kind of misplaced on your head. It's one of my most favorite parts in this whole movie. Ruddles, all you need is cash. Check it out um, if you can. It's definitely out there. Like this clip is on YouTube. Um, but I do encourage you to track down this movie. It is available in kind of like a little edited version on YouTube. Um, but this, you can. Was this a feature length movie? It was about like an hour and 15 minutes long. Okay. Um, you can definitely find it mostly all of it on on youtube uh if you're a fan of monty python or spinal tap uh, like that type of humor like you're you're gonna like this and of course if if you're a fan of the beatles i feel like like in the way that spinal tap was directly making fun of some bands or just like the idea of being in a metal band or a band in general the ruddles movie is uh it wasn't necessarily making fun of it it was a parody but it was done with a lot of love for the beatles i would say um it's a really fun movie and kind of held within high regard i would say i definitely got to check this out sounds up my alley it's <laughs> it's and there's like um Oh, I might be getting this wrong, but I mean, there's there's 12 good songs in it, and it's in their all plays off of off of Beatles songs. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Yeah, well, of course. I'm gonna 
look for that on YouTube later tonight. <laughs> yeah, you should. Well, that is your Murray moments. What do we got coming up next uh, episode? Oh, did you have any final thoughts on A Fish Called Wanda? I feel like we covered everything. Man, we covered, we sure did cover a lot this time. Man, other than John Cleese is kind of brilliant. Yeah, I, it's kind of made me, uh, I will say on Netflix currently, they have a lot of Monty Python and some Faulty Towers, which mm-hmm. I was unfamiliar with. So mm-hmm. I've been trying to slowly get into some of that. The Monty Python stuff was never something that I was like, clung to when I was younger, yeah. but I'm finding I appreciate it a little bit more now as an adult. I was just going to say the same thing. I felt like when I watched it when I was younger that I should have gotten why everyone else was laughing around me. But now when I watch it as an adult, I'm like, oh man, this humor was so beyond me. But I get it now. It's yeah, totally it's, funny. I grew up, I kind of was like, grew up early in high school with a couple of Monty Python heads. And I think mm-hmm. that they were just they, nerd, they just like it? nerded out on it too much it like yeah. made me like because i couldn't quite get into it it made me like yeah maybe despise it more i don't know but i'm learning <laughs> i'm learning to love it that, that learning, really to lo- learning to love it <laughs> that happens well sometimes. next uh episode we have coming up is our one year anniversary show oh my god and uh We've got something special planned. Something special. I think we're going to leave that a surprise. Yeah. Um, we we know what we're going to do. We just got to do it. It won't be a surprise if you follow us on social media because mm-hmm. we'll probably start dropping some information about that mm-hmm. uh, on Instagram, Don't Push Boss Podcast, Facebook, Don't Push Boss Podcast. Um, or we're, we're on Twitter. It's a, if you're on Twitter, please follow us because I really don't know what I'm doing. I know you, you handle our Twitter stuff. I, I mean. You really handle most of all of our social media stuff. I just, I, I got a good handle on Instagram. Yeah. I got a decent handle on Facebook. Twitter, I don't really know what I'm doing. So yeah. please follow us. Just find us. Don't push pause. Please. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you want to contact us directly, don't push pause podcast at gmail.com. We will usually answer any question you have that's, uh, you know, within the realm of social acceptability. Um, <laughs> so until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. <laughs> and I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>